Greetings, and welcome back to 100 Years of Horror, a podcast about the evolution of horror movies. I'm your host, Trevor Kefauver, and today we're going to take a look at some classic monster movies released through World War II and discuss the rise of sci-fi horror in the 1950s. By the end of the 1930s, monster movies were becoming more of a novelty. Copycats took Universal Pictures' thoughtful creatures and devolved them into cheesy, kitschy camp. 1939's Son of Frankenstein was a lone exception. By the early 1940s, monster movies felt passé. After all, why did we need on-screen monsters when we had a true-life one in the form of Adolf Hitler? Hitler was obsessed with an animal that would become the main focus of Universal's next wave of monster movies, The Wolf. He used Hairwolf as his pseudonym, and he had his sister change her name to Frau Wolf. It's said he would go around whistling the tune of Disney's Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? saw the end of its most terrible carnage. Today, people are again plagued by unsound theories, the desire for conquest. Again, the world is offered the false idea that might makes right. As the conflict grew, horror and monster movies irrevocably shifted in artistic vision, breaking new ground for the genre. Join me as we journey through the last great monster movies of World War II and into the Atomic Age. If you dare... fixation on the wolf, it's no wonder that the film ushering in the 1940s was The Wolfman. It was released in 1941, starring Lon Chaney Jr. as the lead character. His birth name was Creighton Chaney, and he was the only son of renowned horror icon Lon Chaney. Chaney Jr. decided to take up acting after his father's untimely death in 1930. He resisted using Junior until he realized he would secure more film roles. It was then that his acting career flourished. He received notable praise for his portrayal of Lenny Smalls in Of Mice and Men in 1939. That convinced Universal to cast him in five pictures in 1941, 
among them the Wolfman. The film, by universal standards, are all right, if not a bit corny. Cheney Jr. plays the role of Lawrence Talbot, the son of a privileged landowner from Wales. He returns home to be with his father, played by Claude Rains, and bury his recently deceased brother. He visits Aroma, or Gypsy Camp, in the woods to get information about his brother's mysterious death when he comes across a werewolf with a young woman in its clutches. The werewolf bites Talbot on the chest, and Aroma, played by Maria Ospenskaya, tries to heal him. She reveals to Talbot that he was attacked by her son, Bela, played by Bela Lugosi. You killed the wolf. Well, there's no crime in that, is there? The wolf was Bela. You think I don't know the difference between a wolf and a man? Bela became a wolf, and you killed him. A werewolf can be killed only with a silver bullet, or a silver knife, or a stick with a silver handle. Whoever is bitten by a werewolf and lives becomes a werewolf himself. Go now, and heaven help you. Now that he's a werewolf, Talbot goes on a murderous rampage. He's eventually bludgeoned to death by his own father to prevent him from senselessly murdering more people. The way you walked was thorny, through no fault of your own. But as the rain enters the soil, the river enters the sea. So tears run to a predestined end. Your suffering is over. Now you will find peace for eternity. The film is incredibly atmospheric in its sets, even more so than most Universal monster movies, recycling many of the same sets from other monster films to great effect. The cast, for the most part, are terrific, with Reigns and Ospenskaya giving the most moving performances. Cheney Jr. does his best to play the fish-out-of-water protagonist, even though his lumbering American drawl... Father, I've got to get away from here. Baylor the gypsy was a werewolf. I killed him with that silver cane. I was bitten. Look... The pentagram. That scar could be made by most any animal. Yes, but it's the sign of the werewolf. They say that he can see it in the palm of the hand of his next victim. That's hard to believe. Contrast sharply with the impeccable delivery by the rest of the cast, and he is buried for half of the movie under Jack Pierce's incredible makeup. The Wolfman was yet another Hollywood nightmare of a geographically vague Europe, it anxiously melded together characteristics of America, England, and the continent, portraying the cultural melting pot in Europe during the First and Second World Wars. In fact, Universal's monsters in the 1940s were unconsciously marketed as euphemisms for wartime casualties. Much like how the Wolfman was unconsciously inspired by the imagery of Hitler, Frankenstein's monster became a symbol for the resilience of American troops and their ideology. The monster was able to reassemble blown-off limbs with ease and had the ability to dispose of any obstacle. The poster to promote 1943's Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman shows the two monsters fighting each other, which served as a metaphor for American troops taking on the Germans, even featuring a Buy War Bond sticker. This proved a rallying point for wartime audiences. The Wolfman was featured in three more sequels, 1943's Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, 
1944's House of Frankenstein, and 1945's House of Dracula. The Wolfman boasted more screen time than Dracula and Frankenstein combined during this decade. The character named Lawrence, or Larry Talbot, appears in all four films. His quest to find eternal peace and his frustrated attempts to control irrational, violent forces was a parable of the war effort. The Wolfman saga was the most consistent and sustained monster myth of the war, beginning with the first year of America's direct involvement in the war and finishing up in 1945 when the United States dropped atomic bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. While Universal was churning out the last of its great monster films, RKO began releasing its own low-budget horror movies. RKO had been struggling financially since the release of Citizen Kane in 1941 almost bankrupted the studio. RKO sought to capitalize on the wartime popularity of animalistic transformations and give Universal some competition. Val Luton was a 37-year-old former story editor who was put in charge of the fledgling RKO horror unit. He got to work quickly, but he was dealing with small budgets. Luton came to the realization that he could generate different kinds of scares by using shadows, light, and sound to suggest threats without ever directly showing them. This was the start of psychological horror films that didn't use elaborate makeup effects to scare audiences. Cat People, released in 1942, remains the most memorable of these films. It had originally been conceived as a contemporary wartime story. In Luton's first treatment, a Nazi panzer division invades a Balkan village. The inhabitants of the village put up no immediate resistance. They didn't have to. At night, they turned into giant werecats and killed their oppressors. Luton imagined a village girl fleeing to New York City and taking the curse with her. The Nazis were eventually dropped from the final film, but the character of the cat girl remained the centerpiece of the script. The film follows Irina Dubrovna, played by Simone Simon. Irina is a Serbian refugee who is also a fashion designer. She meets and marries a naval architect, but cannot consummate the relationship because she fears that sex will transform her into a predatory animal. Her husband confides in his co-worker Alice, and Irina becomes more and more jealous, culminating in a harrowing scene in which Irina stalks Alice into a swimming pool. Dr. Rick Worland, professor of film and media arts at Southern Methodist University and author, is an expert on the history of horror movies. They were marketed and understood very often as, quote, horror films. And that's also because the word mystery, that mystery could mean either solving a crime or it could mean an uncanny, weird, I can't figure out what is causing this. The Luton movies play so beautifully on because we never are fully sure that Irena, this isn't all happening in her mind. It's sort of, you know, American innocence and positivity stacked up against the kind of darkness that is suggested by uh, Irena's existence. That was Dr. Ben Alpers, Associate Professor of American Intellectual and Cultural History at the University of Oklahoma and author. Cat People was a success, causing RKO to embark on its own horror run, 
following up with films like 1943's I Walked with the Zombie, 1943's The Seventh Victim, and 1945's The Body Snatcher. Luton's films were highly successful because he had the foresight to make pictures for female audiences. Women, by 1942 or so, women are the prime audience for movies because more and more men are away in the military. Different uh, historians have dug up industry correspondence and looked at advertising and so on, and it makes it very clear that there was a pivot in 1942-45 to pitching movies at women. Some of these movies, including several of the Luton films, are absolutely female-centered. Luton's female protagonists gave women the chance to release their own wartime anxieties as women were asked to take on more job responsibilities. With men fighting in the war, women filled their shoes in wartime manufacturing. When World War II ended, America entered a new era of prosperity. At the same time, the war had claimed the lives of over 40 million soldiers and civilians, and it introduced radicalized forms of death such as concentration camps and the atomic bomb. It's, it's of this moment where people in like 1945, 46, 47 are trying to figure out, well, what does the world order look like after World War II? Five years after defeating Germany and Japan, America was once again at war, this time in Korea. The United States was haunted by the specter of the H-bomb, a looming necrotechnology now shared uneasily with the Soviets. This resulted in a call to conformity across American society and an assumption that Hollywood films became timid and conformist as well. There was this general sense that the 50s Hollywood were these boring, conformist, timid movies, that they were all very pro-status quo and so on. I mean, this is foundational decade of the modern civil rights movement, right? Montgomery bus boycott is the 1950s. That's not conformity. America in 1950 might have had the look and smell of a new car, but remnants of mass wartime death and the fear of the bomb lurked beneath the surface of suburbia. With the government's interferment in the Philippines and the beginnings of Vietnam, America was starting to throw its weight around more in the world and was starting to grow more paranoid. Nick Cull is a professor of communication at USC and expert on the role of mass communication in foreign policy. I'm sure that it's nuclear fears. A thing I also think happens in horror is that you project onto others the things that you're doing. As you become an invasive country right, or an imperialist country, you then fear being Invaded. Most Americans found it easier to not face these invasion-slash-annihilation anxieties directly. Instead, their fears manifested in the rise of Senator Joe McCarthy's anti-communist witch hunts. And then there was the hysteria over UFOs. This was the age of missiles and rockets. We were getting used to wonders. So why not visit us from outer space? Hundreds of people told Air Force investigators they'd seen the saucers with their own eyes. Bright, shiny things that wish through the air at incredible speeds. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're going to rock around the clock tonight. The 1950s in America saw the development of television, a new technological achievement that flipped American culture and horror movies upside down. Traditional monster movies were struggling to compete with the new novelty of TV. 
Universal released The Creature of the Black Lagoon in 1954 as a last-ditch effort to keep audiences intrigued. The film follows an amphibious Amazonian creature who terrorizes the crew of an expedition. It has spectacular makeup effects and underwater sequences, and the unrequited romance of The Gill Man is emotional, if a little corny. To compete with TV, Hollywood began to combine horror and science fiction genres. These types of movies were popular after the overwhelming trauma of World War II. The threat of mass destruction whether it be from communism or bombs, was heavy in Americans' minds. Once you started going back and looking at these movies, my God, things were just completely fraught and about to boil over uh, in, in 50s Hollywood. You can see what's going to happen <laughs> in America. Monsters came in two basic shapes in the 50s. One was the gigantic mutations, the product of atomic testing. The other, alien invaders usually intent on some kind of brainwashing or ideological control. These villains personified the bomb as well as the Cold War battle between communism and democracy. Godzilla, released in 1954, is the key film of the mutation metaphor. It follows a team of scientists trying to stop a giant creature wrecking havoc on Tokyo after they exposed it to nuclear radiation. The beast was conquered in the end. The film presents a melancholy take on Japan's trauma. Its stark black-and-white cinematography makes the hokey appearance of Godzilla seem more intimidating. It was produced in Japan, the only country to ever endure a nuclear attack. Godzilla merged atomic trauma onto the King Kong formula. During the 1950s, the bomb distorted and magnified cultural dread. It created a new worldview, with the bomb representing all the faith, hope, fear, and awe generated by the ambiguous post-war age. Other films that follow Godzilla's basic ethos of fighting off atomic creatures include Them, released in 1954, and the 1958 film Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. U.S. Senator Joseph McCarthy alleged that communists were infiltrating the federal government. I think we've got a much more serious situation now in communist infiltration of the CIA. Have we uh, the names and, uh, of the people? In- I, I've discussed this matter with the members of the committee. I've also discussed with the members of the committee the question of communist infiltration of atomic and hydrogen bomb plants. What McCarthy did is he took a genuine problem in American intellectual life and in political life, and he exploited it for his own political advancement. Mind-controlling extraterrestrials took the place of communists in a number of films, most notably in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. This 1956 film, directed by Don Siegel, remains the best of this genre. Invasion of the Body Snatchers is fascinating because it is read both as a allegory of communism and an allegory of McCarthyism.
The film's story follows the alien invasion of Santa Mira, a small town in California. Alien plant spores have fallen from space and grown into large seed pods, which can produce a visually identical copy of a human being. As each pod develops it, it assimilates the physical traits, memories, and personalities of a sleeping person placed near it. However, the duplicates are devoid of any human emotion. They're like huge seed pods. This must be the way that potty in my closet was formed. Miles, where do they come from? I don't know. If they are seeds or seed pods, they must grow someplace on a plant, probably. And somebody or something wants this duplication to take place. But when they're finished, what happens to our bodies? I don't know. When the process is completed, probably the original is destroyed or disintegrates. As the invasion grows, a local scientist, played by Kevin McCarthy, attempts to stop this quiet invasion to no avail. The pod people are successful in their attempts to take over the world. The film has a clear Cold War resonance, shot more like a film noir than a horror film, to better accentuate the psychological struggles of the scientist protagonist. Siegel indicts the tendency toward blind social conformity, the escape from freedom that's a trait of industrialized societies generally. The enemy is them and us. The idea of an enemy within resonated with fears of or the communist paranoia. So it, it's an example of a fear of a society being corrupted from within, uh, people being replaced. And, and you could see that as playing into the, the, the McCarthyite fantasy. But equally, it's, a, it, it's a, about mass society and a fear of people being completely taken over by the, the priorities of a mass society. Will you tell these fools I'm not crazy? Make them listen to me before it's too late! Listen to me. Please listen. If you don't, if you won't, if you fail to understand, then the same incredible terror that's menacing me will strike at you! They're here already! You're next! As the decade came to a close, cultural anxiety shifted further away from the outlandish Red Scare toward widespread cultural upheaval worldwide. Censorship, both artistic and physical, was tested in the tumultuous decade of the 1960s. Join me next time as I plunge into the psychological horror of the 60s in films like Psycho and Rosemary's Baby. We'll also look at the sexy resurrection of monster movies that were produced by Hammer Studios and Roger Corman. We'll also discuss the giallo horror films of Dario Argento as we move into the classic slasher films of the 70s. All research done on 1940s and 50s horror movies was taken from The Monster Show by David J. Skull and Rick Warland's The Horror Film, An Introduction. I'd like to thank my guest speakers this episode, Rick Warland, Benjamin Alpers, and Nick Cull. Thanks to Wesley Stenzel, Henry Jenkins, Willis Seidenberg, and Karen Sternheimer for all their guidance and support. Original theme music composed and performed by Nick Mervis. This podcast was produced at the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism at the University of Southern California. Until next time, make sure nothing's going bump in the night. Pleasant dreams.
the night, about 12 o'clock, I thought I'd go downstairs just to check the lock. When I heard something in the house, I don't mean a mouse. I swear they were spooks, spooks, spooks. I know they were spooks, 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 spooks. I couldn't move, just stood and stare. I never was so scared. <laughs> 